I do not believe that Trump is not going to run. Everybody says Trump's not going to run, but I don't believe them. Why wouldn't he run? Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As our regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoon. But on some Saturdays, like today, for instance, we release one of our interviews in its entirety, unedited, warts and all. Today, it's an interview with Mickey Kaus, good friend, founder of Kaus Files, and one of the smartest political analysts I know. That's up next. Welcome to the podcast. We have as our guest a very special guest, my friend Mickey Kaus. He's the author of a legendary book, I would say, The End of Equality, which went a long way to, I guess, setting the framework for welfare reform. He's been a journalist with a number of established, uh, well-established institutions, including the Washington Monthly, Harper's, Newsweek, The New Republic, the list goes on. He is the proprietor of the legendary Kaus Files, which you can find at kausfiles.substack.com. We're very happy to have him on the podcast today. Mickey, welcome. Thanks, John. I I was thinking about talking to you, and I, the, I go back to the 2020 election. Um, we elected uh, Joe Biden. I understand the Electoral College was closer, but we elected Joe Biden in the popular vote by a significant margin, 7 million plus votes. Um, And the reason that we did that was essentially to get rid of Donald Trump. Um, So, you know, it's weird because we have a president who has fulfilled his mandate before he's uh, taken the oath of office. Uh, And I wanted to get your take on So he's elected, he's done his job, and he comes forward with two obvious things, uh, speed up vaccination as as fast as possible, and then a continuation, essentially, I think it's called the American Rescue Plan, but it's essentially part two of what the Trump administration did. I think theirs was called a stimulus plan. and that, you know, that got got through relatively easily. And now we get to the hard part. Um, what do you think are the hard parts for Biden going forward? Well, I think um, the overall price tag is pretty huge, $6.1 billion. Trillion. Trillion dollars, sorry. The, the, the critique I read this morning, which I think is accurate, is it's there's no one big theme. It's not like Lyndon Johnson establishing Medicare or Franklin Delano Roosevelt establishing Social Security. It's a grab bag of things, some of which are big, some of which are very good, some of which are very troublesome, with no sort of overwhelming theme. It's like, you know, you know, spend spend five times as much money on everything and everything the liberal interest groups have, have dreamt up. Uh, and that's not very inspiring. Uh, obviously, there are some parts that are very good. I, You know, Trump should have gotten rid of the carried interest loophole. So if Biden gets rid of it. That's a feather in his cap. Uh, I don't think the tax cuts or the tax increases on the rich are particularly onerous. Uh, Clearly, Obamacare needed shoring up, uh, so they're shoring it up. Uh, There are also things that are very troublesome. Uh, The one that sticks in my craw most is this refundable child tax credit, which basically recreates the old welfare system where you give money to uh, you know, single parents and parents who do no work at all outside the home uh, recreates the old welfare system, which had horrible consequences. 
and somehow the liberals have snuck this into the Biden package, although there was a wrinkle that happened last night that we should talk about. But um, uh, it, it, that's very troublesome. It, it would also change uh, industrial relations if they smuggle in some form of card check to make it easier for unions to organize. But I don't think that's going to make it into the final bill. I'm not even sure it's in in full force in in the, in the proposal from Biden. But that that that's the sort of thing that would dramatically change society. Otherwise, it seems to me he's spending six point one billion dollars trillion dollars, sorry, uh, and not changing society that much at all. Uh, which may maybe that that's what the voters want. They don't <laughs> they want to spend a lot of money, but don't don't want any dramatic social change. How did how did the undoing of welfare reform sneak in? I that just like. Sort of. I remember reading uh, one of your posts uh, on the Substack House Files, and thinking, "Wow, that that just came out of nowhere." What, how did it get in there? It 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 didn't really come out of nowhere because the 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 basic rule is the left never sleeps. <laughs> so the idea is that Clinton reformed welfare in '96, along with Newt Gingrich, and then you know people who were promoting welfare reform sort of said, "Well, that's done." But the left and academia did not rest. Uh, they were always uh, promoting something called guaranteed child support, which is basically like welfare under the guise of, hey, we're, we're giving the mothers the child support that their deadbeat dads don't give them. Uh, they, the left ginned up a bunch of studies from the National Academy saying, hey, it's great to give cash to parents. And uh, they, they hit on a sort of perfect vehicle in this COVID bill, where they could bury it in the COVID bill, they could bill it as temporary assistance, even though they wanted to make it permanent. Uh, and it's in this big bill, so it's barely even mentioned in the stories about uh, about all these giant bills. Oh, yes, there's also a child tax credit. Nobody knows that the child tax credit is not doesn't really have anything to do with taxes. It is sending cash directly to people, uh, whether they work or not. And the other part of it is, that the right is the you know that normally you'd think uh, the right would immediately attack this right it worked for Gingrich it's worked for Republicans as as a reporter told me they have the cookbook on the shelf they could just pull it down and and attack it and they haven't done it and that's the great mystery and the answer seems to be that the Republicans want to position themselves as a working class party, and they want to fight income inequality perversely for the Republicans. And uh, and this seems like a way to do it, coupled with sort of J.D. Vanceism. And I'm a I'm a big fan of J.D. Vance, but he's uh, he he talks about aiding people where they are, not making them move, and he talks about helping mothers stay at home. And this seems to dovetail with that. So there's a whole bunch of J.D. Vance right-wingers who are pulling their punches and even supporting this, uh, you know, uh, Yuval Levin, Ramesh Panuru, a bunch of people at the National Review uh, who love this. And then there are the natalists like Ross Douthat who just want to increase the birth rate. They think this will do it. It'll help us stand up to China uh, and somehow replacing ourselves uh, through births is very important to them. And part of it is they it's, a, it's sort of a Catholic anti-abortion thing. So all those factors go into the stew, and the basic thing is the opposition hasn't showed up yet. Is, is this just UBI, universal basic income, by and another set of clothes, or what? 
it's 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 a bit of UBI. It's U, it's a UBI for parents, uh, and there's a big argument whether it that means it's a slippery slope to the UBI for everybody. There are people on the left who who think it should be, and and a lot of people uh, see it that way. But there are also people uh, like Scott Winship of AEI who thinks, well, it's he doesn't like it, but it's not necessarily a slippery slope uh, toward a broader UBI for everyone. Uh, it does erode the the it erodes the ethic of work. It basically says, if you have a kid, you don't you can have a family where nobody has to go out in the workforce. You don't need any breadwinner. Complete contravention of the the ethos of welfare reform, which was everybody has to work, and if you work, you should be able to live a dignified life. This says no, you don't have to work. So you would think that ethic would gradually spread uh, to the to everybody else, and and it's sort of. Uh, the trend, the the troubling trend is basically it takes a large part of the American labor force and says, you know, we don't expect you to work. We'll we'll put you on the dole, uh, and and um, you know, yet uh, the, the same people tend to want to bring in immigrants who will do the work. So basically, the the broad, vulgar caricature trend is Americans go on the dole, immigrants come on and do the jobs. And then the right, then the left attacks Republicans for thinking that uh, they're they're being replaced. Well, in effect, they are being replaced. All right. Tell me about uh, the border. Um, you know, the the Biden administration. If you look at the polls, obviously the one uh, place where they're not getting particularly good reviews is the border and immigration policy uh, more generally. Do you know what the Biden administration immigration policy actually is? I uh, I don't, and there was this really uh, weird uh, event that happened last week, or, or maybe two weeks ago, where uh, the old Joe Biden showed up. Basically, Biden has given over uh, immigration policy to the progressive wing of his party, and they don't want to stop the flow. And th- their idea of a solution to the border crisis is we let everybody in very efficiently and humanely, but they all get in. And somehow this is supposed to stop the flow. Of course, it won't stop the flow. It'll encourage more people to come. And but they don't seem to mind that. So that's the the Ali the Mayorkas, uh, the Secretary of DHS. That's sort of the the strategy that he's pursuing. Uh, bizarrely, the old anti-busing Joe Biden showed up two weeks ago and said, "This is killing me. I can't." The, the, and on, on a side issue, which is the cap on refugees, which is a totally different issue. He put his foot down and said, I'm not increasing the cap on refugees. I'm going to keep it as a, at a historically low, like 12,000, where Trump had had had, uh, had said it. He, he had promised in the campaign to, to do 10 times that. And he said, no, this is killing me. I'm not doing it. Damn it. <laughs> uh, and, he, and he, you know, the, 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 the refugee industrial complex and all the people that make money off of refugees, uh, you know, rebelled and, and forced him to to change policy. But where did that come from? Did Biden, is, is this a compensating for the fact that in the main immigration policy, which is the millions of, of people who are coming in at the border, as opposed to 12,000 or 120,000 uh, in refugees, uh, he is he has ceded control. So he seems to realize that that's killing him, but he doesn't do anything about it. The obvious thing to do is to fire Mayorkas and, and switch policies uh, he's not doing that. Mayorkas is very successfully getting uh, 
getting Javier Becerra, the attorney, the HHS secretary, to take the blame and be the fall guy. Uh, uh, he's really played this brilliantly. So um, I don't, um, I, I don't know what the dynamics are. It's the one area where Biden just doesn't seem to be in control. Just as a side sidebar, what was the whole Kamala Harris is going to take care of it interlude about? Um, I don't know. This is, you know, if, if in the Trump administration, we found out within hours what had happened behind every decision. You know, the, the, the principals would call Maggie Haberman. She would report it and we would know what had happened in the Oval Office. Uh, and, and Biden, we we have had no reporting on what the hell happened with that. I, I think they decided to make Kamala Harris, the, the czar of the border. Right. Uh, and, and they were telling people she's going to, you know, be the point person. And, and she obviously knows a no win situation when she <laughs> right, sees exactly. one and must've rebelled somehow and said, Oh, I'm not doing the border. I only do the root root crosses in the central American countries. Yeah. You know, this hard work of diplomacy and Mayorkas is in charge of the border or somebody else is in charge of the border. So she basically tossed the hot potato right back at the rest of the Biden administration and doesn't seem to have paid a price for it. I don't quite, you know, but, but who knows what's going on behind the scenes. If if Maggie Haberman were around and this were the Trump administration, we would know, but we There's don't know. There's a great sidebar, which I'm not sure is, you know, maybe apocryphal, but it. it I was told that... Uh, uh, a friend of mine was talking to Trump and said, you know, I can't believe what Maggie Haberman does, says about you, so on and so forth. And Trump, according to this story, I'm not entirely certain it's true, but Trump said to her, it's the only way I find out what's going on in the White House. <laughs> but anyway. It sounds too good to check. Yeah, too good to check, exactly. But anyway, so it, they announce her. Uh, Kamala's going to take over. Like the next day, Kamala says, no, 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 no. Uh, we're, we're looking at root causes and so on and so forth. And then it sort of went blank. I mean, I, that just seems ex- well, she, incredible to me that, that a story well, that good could just go unreported, essentially. Uh, uh, I agree. I mean, it, it, it's a sign of, uh, of, of a sort of dereliction of duty on the part of the press, or else the Biden White House is just so impervious to leaks. It's hard to believe that a reporter couldn't find out. Yeah, I mean, uh, the there there have been there have been good critical there has been good critical reporting of his border policies, mainly by Nick Miroff of the Washington Post, uh, but he hasn't touched that yeah. issue. So, what do you think we should do about immigration? I mean, with this flood of immigrants uh, either coming in already or trying to get in, what's a sensible policy for you know bringing the situation under control? Well, the, the you know the in order to have a really sensible policy, you have to change the law. Uh, the you know you have to tighten up the standards for asylum. Uh, the remain in Mexico policy was a Good policy in theory, uh, because it basically what what the these asylees are doing is they're gaming the system. Uh, they get an initial determination that they might win their lawsuit, and they get into the country, and then they all lose their lawsuits. But they're in the country already, and they just stay. Right. So the Remain in Mexico policy called their bluff. It says we'll give you the the, the adjudication which you'll lose, and in the meantime you don't get in get to come into the country. You have to stay in Mexico. 
as a result, they can't gain the system and they don't come. They just stop coming because they are no longer going to get into the United States pending their hearing. And um, what 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 Nick Miroff suggested, which is right, he should have taken that and improved it. The problem with it, that these people were sitting in intense and unsanitary conditions in Mexico. Well, give them better conditions, but make them remain in Mexico. So that was that was the main thing that he did that helped uh, helped stem the tide. He also got Mexico to crack down on its border with uh, Central America, which is much narrower than our border with Mexico. Right. Uh, and uh, those two things, plus the pandemic, which just let him use something called Title 42 to send them all back, uh, that stopped the tide. Trump had the problem under control, the immediate problem. So the answer is to go back to those policies. Uh, a long-term problem, you have to you have to tighten up the asylum rules. You have to get rid of something called the Flores decision, which says you can't hold kids in in detention for more than a couple of weeks, and you have to let them into the country. Uh, and um, you know the overall grand picture. I I, I talked to a, a a famous Democratic TV uh, sort of MSNBC CNN personality years ago, and he said, "Look." It's obvious how you solve this problem. You establish border security. You, you, you basically create a system where nobody gets in unless we say so. And then once the public is satisfied with that, then you can have an amnesty of all the people who are here so that we don't have a, a class of second class citizens uh, living in the United States. That's, that's the obvious progression. And the fact that neither party goes through this progression <laughs> implies that they don't really want to solve the problem. Certainly the left would not be happy with that because they want an ongoing flow. They do not want the border secured. Uh, so that that's basically the, basically the left has not adjusted its expectations down toward that obvious solution. The, the, the shorthand for that solution is enforcement first. Right. Uh, but there are a lot of people on the right who don't ever want an amnesty. I'm not one of them. I think at, you know it. You know there is a deal to be had. It's just we're nowhere near it. Do the Republicans, and I guess that's that assumes some unified position. But are there people in the Republican Party who have uh, put forward enforcement first legislation or are stumping for it or whatever? Oh yes, yes. Every now and then, you know, somebody proposes it. Uh, uh, it it's never really been adopted by the Republican Party as a whole because the Republican Party is split. It has always been half people who are for enforcement and the other half are Chamber of Commerce types who sort of like the flow of cheap labor. Uh, and, you know, that's part of what's happening now. We're going to get two million new workers or one million new workers with who are sneaking across the border. Uh, and uh, and businesses are going to be happy to get those workers. So they're, they, they have a lot of sway in the Republican Party. Uh, so the, the Republicans, have, you know, until Trump came along, they were split. Now with Trump, there's the process. They're still split. The old Chamber of Commerce types, uh, uh, with an exception of Marco Rubio, are uh, are trotting out their same old solutions. You know, Frank Luntz is going to going to the Republican retreat, and he'll probably say, you know, you should really embrace an amnesty. I hear if I phrase it as a <laughs> a barrier, not a wall, you know, that'll go, that'll go down so much more easily with the left. Um, and, uh, so they're being very unimaginative. And the question is, will the Trump people push out 
the open borders or loose borders types uh, from any role in the in the party, and and that's I think an open question. But the the you know Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley are probably uh, in the Senate the the most obvious proponents of a, of a an enforcement first approach. It used to be Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions was the stalwart, uh, and then and then he made the tragic mistake of wanting to be Attorney General. Yes, yes, that was. Uh... That left him what? Um, in a defeated Republican primary, thanks to his former boss, right? Yes, that was uh, one of Trump's many bad days. <laughs> Not as bad as blowing the Georgia Senate race, but pretty bad. Um, I wanted to uh, to ask you. Um, you follow this stuff really closely. Is anybody? I mean, in the post-Trump. Uh, I mean, I, I always say that the the after Trump is Trump, but uh, if we assume that Trump is not going to run, who on the Republican side do you think is is beginning to get their act together for twenty twenty four? Um, like you, I I I do not believe that Trump is not going to run. Everybody says Trump's not going to run, uh, but I don't believe them. Why wouldn't he run? Right. Um, the uh, uh, you know, I, I, I like, I, I, this is going to sound crazy. I like two dark horses. I, I like J.D. Vance, mm-hmm. who may run for Senate if he wins that Senate seat, which is a big if. Uh, I think he immediately becomes an important figure. And he has the Reagan-esque ability to say very nasty things in a very nice way <laughs> that goes down easy, or very, very, very edgy things, things that have traction. Uh I worked for Tucker Carlson. I, I, you know, and I like Tucker Carlson. I, I had a fight with him, but, uh, uh, but he is a very, very skilled rhetorician. Uh, and you know, I just drove across the country and I listened to all the talk radio shows, and it, it just convinces you how good Tucker is because they're all terrible. <laughs> and he, 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 they all start with a ten-minute rant, right? Okay, and it's terrible. It's the same junk you've heard a hundred times and tucker has something new and interesting to say every day sometimes it's a little crazy but his things are well written and you want to listen to him so he'd be the perfect person to have in the oval office giving speeches having worked for him i have some doubts about his manager <laughs> but um you would have you could have wrong you could have ron klein take that you know the republican version of ron klein take that over um i like tom cotton except he's uh you know quite hawkish on foreign policy uh, I think Josh Hawley has blotted his copybook. I I like Ron DeSantis, except I I think his views on immigration, which are is sort of the big one of the big issues for me, are are still a little obscure. I don't know exactly what he thinks. Uh, uh, he's been pretty good, but you know you never know what 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 he'll do in in the White House. Uh, and who else is there? I mean, I, I you know I I. I Am uh, very dismissive of all the uh, the uh, old style uh, Lynn Cheney, Nikki Haley, uh, neocon foreign policy Republicans, but but John, I'm I'm still technically a Democrat, so it's not my party. I shouldn't give them advice, right? <laughs> um, and, they, and they wouldn't take my advice anyway. I, t- I you know, it was funny when I was uh, working uh, for Rupert in 2016. It, Roger Ailes had just been uh, fired, 
And Rupert took over and, you know, met everybody and talked to everybody. And uh, about three weeks after um, he had taken command of the situation, he came, told all of us that we had to read this book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. And uh, literally every single senior executive at Fox was told to read the book. I'm not sure how many actually did. Um, but he was then, and I think still is, uh, and, you know, a huge fan of J.D. Vance. Peter Thiel, who is, uh, Rupert is a huge admirer of Peter. Uh, they go to the squad, you know, the Allen and Company conference together in July every summer. Um, and Rupert thinks the world of him. Uh, he is, uh, started the Vance campaign essentially in Ohio with a $10 million independent expenditure. Um, you put those two things together, the Thiel money network and Rupert's media power, uh, J.D. Vance looks a lot more formidable in the Ohio Senate race than he otherwise might. What attracts you to him? Well, I, 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 you know, he is sort of the tribune of the, the, uh, the people in flyover country, the, working class people who were sort of ignored by the policy elites uh, and including by me. I mean, I was a neo, a big neoliberal in the, not that I was important, but in the, in the late nineties, I was a Clintonite who said, let's help people, not places, let them move out of Appalachia and move out of the Midwest to where the jobs are. And they didn't move. Right. <laughs> they didn't want to move. And, uh, and JD Vance was, the, is the guy who says, no, we have to help them where they are, we have to, we can't just throw these people away. Uh, you know, Walter, well, I, I, I was, I was looking back on a, a dialogue I had with Walter Russell Mead and, and Walter made a very important point, which is the elites of the country used to need the working class. In other words, they needed them either because they were unionized and the working class could, could basically cripple them if they went on strike or they needed them in the army to fight wars. They needed their loyalty to the nation. Uh, they don't sort of need them anymore, and they will ignore them if given the opportunity. Although, just put them on the dole, give them a child allowance, and say, "Sorry, that's, that's what you're getting." Uh, and and Vance is the person who said, "No, sorry," is one of the people who said, "No, that won't do." Uh, uh, along with Trump on his better days, so uh, that's why I like him. And also, he, he every time I hear him speak, he just seems so damn sensible. Uh, and he seems like an ordinary person with a family who wants to preserve his community and preserve a more a traditional way of life. And he just seems eminently sensible. He'd be very hard to attack. He would be, I think. I mean, I, I, my own view is that he will win the Senate uh, race in Ohio, um, fueled uh, in part, obviously, by his ability to access uh, vast amounts of cash. Um, but also because uh, the message seems right. You and I both talked to Walter Mead a number of times, uh, and Walter always says, you know, if even if Trump goes away, that constituency is there. Who can talk to that constituency is the central issue on on uh, sort of in American politics, really. One side note is, you know, Teal has three candidates. He's backing, I think. There's a guy in Missouri named Schmidt, uh, and there's uh, one of his former aides is running in Arizona. So if he if he is successful, he can end up with putting three people in the Senate. Uh, 
which would be pretty impressive. Yeah. The question, of course, is if uh, J.D. Vance wins in Ohio, um, that would be 2022. Can you, can you run for president having been in your office for you know a day and a half, right? Isn't that what Obama did? Uh, pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. So I, I, I tend to think that uh, in this fast-paced media landscape, John, you can get away with that sort of thing. Oh, fast-paced media landscape brings us to the faster filer thesis, <laughs> uh, which I need you to uh, describe to our listeners because it's it's uh, it's a it's a key component to understanding what's going on in American politics today. The um, well, it, it, this this may not be original, but it's you know as far as I know, it's original. I was having a Chinese meal with my friend Bruce Filer, uh, and it was at, it was at the time when. Uh, all the pundits were lamenting the fact that the the uh, primaries were happening so quickly. They'd all been front-loaded, and they were all having happening one after another. One week, you'd be in South Carolina. The next week, you were somewhere else. And and Bruce said something which was, seemed completely from left field, which is, I think we could do it faster. Uh you know, we the the public is is vi- it has become very capable of digesting and processing information very quickly. They hear it instantly. Uh, it takes them a day or so to process, and then it's processed, and they're ready for something new. It used to take a week for the information to filter out. And uh, so now the, 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 the pace of, uh, of, of, of the people sort of understanding the news and then waiting for the next news and moving on to the next trend has just radically accelerated. So uh, a, 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 a concrete example is after uh, South Carolina, uh, everybody assumed McCain would have great momentum, you know, and would carry through to the next primary a week away. And the faster thesis says, no, he'll have great momentum for a day. The right. primary is in six days. There's room for five more stories before that primary happens. Uh, so his momentum will fade very quickly. And uh, that's, in fact, what happened. Yeah. And it goes the other way, too, right? I mean, Biden wins South Carolina and then almost instantly, um, you know, Democrats across the country say, OK, he's the nominee. <laughs> like, right. There, there is there are some exceptions, like when John Kerry won the nomination or, or basically won Iowa. I expected there to be like a backlash against Kerry and ups and downs. And none of that happened. He just he just uh, sort of. Uh, glided as if he was windsurfing into the nomination uh, without any sort of perturbation. So that was that was a a contradiction. But um, no, I meant I meant the Fester Filer thesis actually applied to Biden in that uh, you know there was obviously Biden having lost you know primary after caucus after primary goes into South Carolina and it's clear that um, you know the. Democratic a majority of the Democratic primary vote voters and caucus attenders wanted the person most capable of beating Trump. Right. But uh, if Biden couldn't even win in South Carolina, then you know they'd have to go find somebody else, Mike Bloomberg or you know whomever. Uh, and he wins South Carolina, and basically the primary electorate and caucus attenders say, "Okay, yep, that's that's done." They process it instantly into a final decision. I mean, the, right. the speed with which Biden went, you know, whatever. I think South Carolina is on a Saturday. So Friday, the talk is Biden is doomed. 
and you know, within how, however many days it was, uh, he was the nominee. I mean, talk about a faster uh, right. filer thesis. I mean, that's like uh, Federal Express or something. It's amazing. Right. Right. So th- basically this theory of filers has, has, I think, held up, and it's more or less the conventional wisdom. Other people may have had it earlier. I, I haven't read uh, James Glick's book, Faster. Ah. Uh. True. It's probably in there somewhere. True. <laughs> I want to, you know, one of the things, obviously, that that uh, you and I have talked about in the past is the transformation, I guess you would say, of uh, what we have come to call the mainstream media. Um, you started your career with the Washington Monthly and worked at, you know, the New Republic, sort of famous, um, I guess, liberal publications, you would call them. Um there was a time, it seems to me, when you and I were getting started in the media business that, you know, the goal really was, it, it, it was a, it was a liberal group because it's self-selected, uh, but there was a, there was a, there was a, uh, I got desire is not the right word, but there was sort of a code that you wanted to be as objective as possible. Uh, and that seems to have completely gone away. What is that your view, and to what do you just that, ascribe it? That is sort of my view, and in, in part, it's in part it's what was latent becoming blatant. In other words, when I was at Newsweek, I was basically scheming to get the Democrat election, Democrats elected, but you would never say so publicly, right? Uh, but there was also the ethic that if you had something. There was true that was bad for, say, Michael Dukakis. You said it. You didn't cover it up uh, and uh, or, or just omit it. Uh, and um, uh, so I think that has that, that that part has changed. I think people are much more committed to the cause to the extent of which they will actually not report the truth. And also the language they use has just become much more blatant and propagandistic. And, and that's because their audience has shifted. In other words, uh, they are preaching now to the converted. They are making their money. The New York Times now makes its money. This is not not an original point, but it's true. Makes its money from liberals, so they they have to uh, give the give those people what they want. Uh, they don't make their money off of ads anymore. They make their money off of subscriptions, and and the liberals have more money than conservatives. So uh, Nike does not go broke, uh, put uh, embracing Colin Kaepernick, and the New York Times will not go broke being blatantly biased in favor of Democrats. That's what their audience wants. Uh, and, the, and then the third part is the reaction against Trump. They figured, well, maybe if we just say he lies more forcefully, <laughs> that this will do the job against him. And I guess eventually it did. But uh, uh, now they're stuck with uh, sort of uh, deciding that ex-politician is lie, a liar and dishonest and I noticed yesterday uh, Nick Miroff of the Washington Post said that Biden had falsely said something. Oh. Well, you would never have said that before, and this is like a whole a carryover from from the Trump period when reporters took it upon themselves to just declare that some things were false and some things weren't. Yeah, I I do think uh, you know I, I say this again and again, and when I do you know pieces for uh, for news items that. Uh, in the modern world of media, the audience programs the network and not the other way around. You, you've And you've given me examples of that, like when Tucker Carlson turns on a dime and suddenly 
first he's scared of the of the virus and the pandemic, and then he turns on a dime and says, "No, we're overact- overreacting <laughs> to the pandemic." Yeah. And 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 what happened is his audience didn't like the message he was selling. Yeah. No, I mean, it, at Fox, um, you know, they had the 15-minute blocks, um, uh, the Nielsen ratings. So you and I are doing a show on Fox, and uh, they get it at 115, 130, 145, and 2. That's how the research is done. They don't get it instantly, but they see it the next day. And so you and I are hosting a show, and we have on J.D. Vance, and our ratings are good. And then we have on Maggie Haberman, and our ratings go down 15%. And uh, so the word comes down from on high, no more Maggie Haberman. Um, and that's, I mean, not that that happened, but that's sort of how uh, opinion journalism works. And it's not just Fox. I mean, MSNBC is exactly the same way. Um, if the audience doesn't want to hear it, the guess, you know, Mickey Kaus's views on immigration, then Mickey Kaus isn't going to be on MSNBC. It's just as simple as that because it, it contradicts what the audience wants to hear. Fox does seem a little weirder there, especially when Ailes was in charge. You weren't sure, did he have a vendetta against somebody? or uh, it wasn't. I, I don't think it was just the ratings, although I, I accept your insight. Oh, no, I'm talking about modern Fox. In, in the Roger okay. era, it was... Uh, uh, there were a lot of things going on. Uh, <laughs> certain people had pissed him off. Certain people, he needed their help. Certain people, you know, he, he, Roger had a, a three-dimensional chess game going um, and was not shy about, you know, calling down to the control room and saying, you know, ask him more, uh, ask him, ask House kinder questions. I like him, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. At least you knew who was in charge, though. Yes, indeed. Uh, Roger was definitely in charge. Yeah. So uh, we got to go. We'll have you again. But I wanted to ask you one last question, which is you're in California. You live in California. Uh, We have now, I think, officially, or maybe not quite officially, a recall election uh, on the way. Uh, Can you give us your take on how things stand? Sure. Is it possible? It's possible. My... Uh, the the odds are are heavily in favor of Newsom. There will be an election where Newsom, the governor, is uh, either recalled or not. And then at the same time, they vote on uh, who would replace him if he is recalled. Right. So it's going to be a circus because it's very easy to enter that second race, and hundreds of people will enter. And Caitlyn Jenner is only the start of it. Yes. I think Randy Quaid jumped in yesterday. Yes. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, but uh, Newsom. The main beef against him was the pandemic, and the pandemic has gotten really good here in California. Right, first we have in the, the best nation, rates right? in, in in the nation. And unless a variant comes in and screws everything up, which is very possible, uh, that issue should get better for Newsom. The issue that will kill him is crime. Uh, you know, even liberals on the west side of LA are apoplectic about crime. They hate our liberal district attorney, San Francisco. They don't like their liberal district attorney. Uh, burglaries are rampant. They're not prosecuted. Uh, it seems like the officials pay much more attention to helping the criminals avoid prison than to actually prosecuting and deterring wrongdoing. That is the latent sleeper issue. And if they if they can nail Newsom on that, and and he's very vulnerable, they have a chance of pulling this off. But I don't see anybody in the second race who's the equivalent of Schwarzenegger 
where they would say, I'd rather have this guy than the incumbent. I have a theory that uh, if Trump decides that, you know, this congressman or this person is should be the Republican nominee and that all the other Republicans slash conservatives slash populists should get out of the race, that that would actually deliver uh, a single candidate on the if you will, the Trump side of of the electorate. And the Trump side of the electorate is fairly significant. I think 34% or 36% in 2020. That's a very good point because, you know, you can win the election with 30%. Exactly. Uh, With 300 candidates in the field, 30% is probably going to be the top number. Well, as a contributor to your U.S. Senate campaign, I wanted to ask you as a final question, are you considering getting in? Uh, no, because I have e- even worse executive ca- abilities than Tucker Carlson. That would be impossible. Uh, th- I, think, this, but. I can spout off, and this—that's what senators get to do. But governors actually have some ch- have to have some chops at running things. Oh. So we'll have to we'll have to find you a Ron Klain before you run. Well, yes, that I mean, I, I mean, no, I, I, I'd have the nomin- I'd have the governorship for the asking, of course, if I entered the race, uh, capitalizing on my five percent showing in. <laughs> the previous Senate race, but I don't think it's uh, it's not I in the cards for me. No, that's too bad. No. Well, thank you very much, Mickey, for doing this. We'd like to have you on more than once, and uh, we'll be in touch. But thanks very much. Thanks, John. John Ellis here again. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in again on Monday through Thursday next week for our regular episodes where Rebecca and I discuss geopolitics finance, science, and technology.